This morning we're going to be in the Gospel of John. So if you go ahead and turn there, we're going to be in chapter 1. We are working our way through his prologue in his Gospel. The first 18 verses, John has this section in which he provides background to the account he's about to give concerning the life and ministry of Christ. He gives an overview of the account he's about to give, and he also provides some additional explanation regarding the significance of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we are specifically going to look at the second part of John's prologue. Last time we covered the first part, the background, verses 1 through 5, and this morning we're going to look at verses 6 through 13. And in this section, as I said, John provides his readers with an overview of the account he's about to give concerning the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. He's actually summing up what happened when Jesus came into the world. But as a reminder, since it's been a month, we'll refresh our memory on the first five verses because they lead into the next section, these next several verses. And in verses 1 through 5, where John provided background to his gospel, he presented Jesus as God the Son, the eternal Word, through whom all things were created, and in whom there is eternal life. He, as the Creator, therefore has life in himself. John said his life is true life, and it is his imperishable divine life that is the ultimate light for mankind. The kind of life that Jesus has in himself is imperishable divine life, which makes it the ultimate light for mankind. Why? Because mankind dwells in a corrupted and fallen world in spiritual darkness, in the shadow of death, all because of why? Because of our sin, our rebellion against our Creator. Sin separates us from God. It separates us from His life, fellowship with Him, His life, His light, that we are in darkness apart from Him because of sin. And because of sin, man in his natural state, in his natural-born state, is darkened in his mind, corrupt to his core, and hostile to God. And he's separated from fellowship with God, and thus also from that imperishable life that is in God. He's born in sin, he's enslaved to sin, and left to himself he will die in his sins. And then he will taste the eternal torment of eternal death, and eternal separation from God, in eternal hell. That's what Scripture teaches. That's what God is made known and made clear in his word. In our natural sinful state, spiritual darkness is within us, it surrounds us, and it awaits us. The only light for us, and therefore our only hope, is the life that, and the life and the fellowship with God that's found where? In and through Jesus God the Son, the eternal, life-giving Word. Jesus' giving of life is light shining in the darkness. So John means when 
You know, the light shines in the darkness. Jesus' giving of his life is light shining in the darkness. It cannot be extinguished. It can't be overcome. To all who walk in spiritual darkness and in the shadow of death, which is all of mankind in their natural state, Jesus is light and life. He is light and life. And again, we're, we're talking a lot about this because these are themes that, that John really emphasizes in his gospel and even in his prologue. The theme of light and life. And Jesus is both. However, as we'll see in our passage this morning, in verses 6 through 13, most do not believe this to be true. And as a result, they remain in their hopeless condition in spiritual darkness. What John tells us in verses 6 through 13 is what happened when the life-giving word, the eternal one, came into the world of fallen men, and when those in darkness personally encountered the one who is the light. He tells us what happened. He begins by telling us of the man who prepared the way for his arrival. Let's read verses 6 through 9. John says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, the man sent from God, whose name was John, is none other than who? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. He was a prophet sent by God to proclaim the word of the Lord to Israel. Now, the last time there was a true prophet in Israel was over 400 years prior to the time that John appeared. Think about that. Over 400 years ago was the last time that Israel had a prophet Amongst them. The last prophet was Malachi, who ministered to the people of Judah after the time of their exile. The people weren't being faithful to the Lord, and Malachi was sent to warn them of the judgment of God and call them to repentance. That's really the, the job description of a prophet. Warn you of the judgment of God, call you to repentance, and back to faithfulness to your covenant with him, to the people of Israel. And that's what Malachi did. But the people persisted in their faithlessness. And after Malachi's ministry, you could say this was a judgment of God. Israel went without the ministry of prophets and hearing the words of the Lord for over four centuries. Silence. Then, all of a sudden, came John. A prophet sent by God. A prophet whose conception was announced to his father beforehand by the angel Gabriel. A prophet who was filled with the Holy Spirit while he was still in his mother's womb. When he began his public ministry to Israel and ministered in the spirit and power of Elijah, well, this was a marvelous thing for the Israelites to behold. John's coming was significant. Not merely because he was the first prophet to be raised up in over four centuries, but because of what he specifically came to do. He was unique among 
the prophets. He was the forerunner of the Messiah, the Lord himself. He was sent by God beforehand to prepare the people of Israel for the arrival of their long-awaited Messiah, the heir to the throne of David, who would restore the kingdom to Israel and reign in righteousness and have everlasting dominion. So the scriptures foretold. Israel's promised king was coming, and John the Baptist was his herald. The angel Gabriel said this concerning John before he was conceived. In Luke's gospel, Gabriel said, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him, before the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John's father, Zechariah, by the Holy Spirit, said this concerning John after he was born. Again in Luke's Gospel, his father said, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. See that theme? Sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. That reference to Christ as the sunrise visiting from on high to give light is similar to how the Apostle John refers to Christ in the middle of his prologue. He refers to him as the light. He says of John the Baptist's ministry in verses 7 through 8, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light. He himself was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the lights. The purpose of John's prophetic ministry was, as the Apostle Paul explained and that we read of in Acts, it was telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That's what he was doing. Telling the people to believe in the one who was coming after him, and that was Jesus. To believe in Jesus. That was his ministry. The Apostle John says that John the Baptist, I have to keep saying that, so we're getting our Johns right here, but the Apostle John says of John the Baptist that he came to bear witness about the light in order that all might believe through him, that is, through his testimony, through his preaching, through his witness. John called the people of Israel to repentance. John the Baptist called them to repentance and administered a baptism of repentance in order to prepare them for the arrival of the one whom John said would come after him who was mightier than him. John, the baptizer the witness, the forerunner, came to prepare the way for the Lord. As the Apostle John says in verse 9, the true light, of which the baptizer, John, bore witness to, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was coming into the world. Now what does it mean that Jesus, as the true light, gives light to everyone? 
What does it mean that it gives light to everyone? Well, as John pointed out in verses 1 through 5, Jesus is the eternal word who is fully God and who has always existed in fellowship with God the Father. He has eternal life in himself, and this life of his is the only light for sinful mankind, which dwells in the realm of spiritual darkness and separation from true fellowship with God. He's the only true light for men. We who are born in darkness are in need of lights. Every person is born in darkness. They are in need of lights. And the life that Jesus gives is the only true light. That is why John says that Jesus, the eternal word, is himself the light. Now, when John says that he, as the true light, gives light to everyone, I believe that he's referring to the fact that Jesus is ultimately the one who reveals the truth and the knowledge of God by which men may receive and share in his life if they believe. But his light shines in the sense that he is the one who reveals, ultimately, he's the source of truth and the knowledge of God by which all men might receive and share in his life if they believe. John says of Jesus a little later in verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, God the Son, he has made him known. Jesus made the following declaration during his public ministry. He said, He who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. You see that? He's giving light to the world. He's making God known to everyone. Jesus also proclaimed, later in John's gospel, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You pass from death to life, you receive eternal life by hearing Jesus' word and believing. It is through him that you have access to the life that is in him, to eternal life. The life we need comes by way of the light that he gives. The light being his revelation of the truth and the knowledge of God. Now, to one degree or another, he gives such light to everyone. Not all to the exact same degree, but he does give light to Everyone, but not everyone believes. Not everyone believes. John gives a summary of the world's response to him. He first points out that by the time John the Baptist began his public ministry, the light that he bore witness about was already in the world. Jesus was actually born only six months after John the Baptist. And in Luke's gospel, we learn that Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. So before he manifested himself to the world as the light, he had been in the world for quite some time already. 30 years. Here's what the Apostle John says in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Now, the fact that John says the world did not know him tells us that he's not referring to the creation as a whole or to the physical world in general. 
but more specifically to mankind who inhabits the physical world. And being made in the image of God is the crowning point of creation. Really, if you think about it, the universe is the dwelling place for man who's made in the image of God. So it's right to say when we're speaking of man, you can also say of the world because essentially the world was created as his dwelling place in which he could live in relationship with God, immediate God's rule in the creation and have fellowship with God. That's how it was meant to be. So John is referring to mankind when he says the world. However, mankind is what? It is fallen. Man is fallen. Although it wasn't created that way, right? If we go back to Genesis, did God create man in a fallen state? No. In Genesis, we read that the first man and woman were part of God's perfectly good creation. Right? Everything was, after he created man, very good. Perfection. Good, pleasing, and perfect. However, the first man and woman then fell from the blissful state they were in because of their sin against God. And as a result, mankind is fallen and corrupted by sin. The world of men has been in a state of spiritual darkness and rebellion against its creator ever since. And yet, God the Son, who is the true light, came into the world of fallen humanity by becoming one of us, being born in the likeness of men, except he was without sin. There's no darkness in him at all. But he came into the world, how? He came in as one of us. He came into the world of mankind. However, although the one through whom all things were made was living on this earth in the midst of his creatures, that's what we are, his creatures, John says they didn't know him. Their creator was dwelling in their midst and they did not know him. They did not recognize him for who he truly was. They thought he was just another man. Why? Ultimately, why? Why did they just not recognize him? Why did they just think he was just another man? Think nothing of him. Because they were in darkness. They were in darkness. Their own sinfulness made them blind to who he truly was. That's their fallenness. They can't see him for who he truly was. That is still the state of the world of men today. The world does not know him. The world does not know him as he truly is. They may have heard of him, but they do not know him personally. What about when he began his public ministry and manifested himself to Israel as the Messiah, the Son of God, through his teaching and miraculous works? He made himself known. He, he stepped onto the scene and began a public ministry. He manifested himself to Israel as the Messiah. What happened then? Well, John the Baptist announced his coming, and he came, and as the Apostle Peter said, he was attested to the people by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in their midst. What then? The Apostle John sums up the people's response in verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
The word people, just for some clarification here, the word people is not in the Greek, but it is implied by the fact that the phrase his own is masculine and plural in the Greek. So it's masculine and plural, it says his own. But because of that, they add people, so we get the sense of what he's talking about. That's implied. He came to his own people. So it's added for clarity. However, the first occurrence of the phrase, his own, in this verse, is plural and not masculine, but neuter. There's, there's no gender to it. Now, we don't really have to deal with this kind of stuff in English. But if you took French or Spanish or something like that, you, you know what we're talking about. But there's a distinction. One's masculine plural, so he's speaking of people here. What does he refer to here? Well, if it's plural and in the neuter, it's not referring to people, but to things. Things. The verse could be translated, he came to his own things, and his own people did not receive him. But in all fairness to the translators, adding the word things in the translation does not really give us any more clarity than just by saying his own by itself, unqualified. So what does it mean? What does it mean that he came to his own things or to the things that belong to him? What does that mean? It's helpful to note that this same exact phrase, to his own things, to his own things, that exact same phrase occurs towards the end of John's gospel, and it's used as a, a particular expression. It occurs in two, two places. In John 16, 32, Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. That says to his own things. It's an expression that means to his own home. In John 19, 26 through 27, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. It's the exact same phrase in the Greek. So what John is saying in chapter 1, verse 11, is that when the true light came into the world of men, he came to his own home. That is, he came to the nation of Israel. He was Israel's long-awaited Messiah. He was the promised king who would restore the kingdom to Israel, reign forever on the throne of his father David, in the city of Jerusalem, in the promised land. All of this was his, was appointed to be his home. This was his homecoming. He came to the home he had appointed for himself. So certainly his eternal home, in heaven with the Father and the Spirit, as, as God the Son, but he had appointed an earthly dwelling, an earthly home. The land of promise, the promised land, Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, these were his things. This was his home. One commentator adds an explanation on this. He says, when he, when he came in the flesh, he came to the Holy Land, to the land and the people which peculiar, peculiarly belonged to Yahweh, God, and were his own. In coming to Israel, rather than to Greece, for instance, the word of God came to his own home on earth. Israel were the chosen people. 
They formed, as it were, an inner circle in the world of men. They were peculiarly his own. So to his own people, his his fellow Israelites, this should have been seen as the fulfillment of prophecy, the answer to their prayers, and the realization of their hope. However, John recounts what happened when the Messiah, the true light, finally came to his rightful home. His own people did not receive him. In other words, they did not accept him. And therefore, they did not welcome him. They, of all people, should have. Should they not? They were God's chosen people. As the Apostle Paul said, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. They possess the scriptures, God's written revelation in which the Christ is promised and his coming is foretold. They had everything they needed to be prepared for his arrival. They even had a herald announcing it. Make way for the Lord. Believe in the one coming after me. He's mightier than I. It's the forerunner. And yet, when the Lord came and manifested himself to them, even though they marveled at his authoritative teaching and were awestruck by his miraculous works, they, in the end, rejected him. It's not that they didn't know any better can't say that. It's not that they didn't know any better. They did. They were just unwilling. They had all the light that could possibly, they could possibly have shining on them. The true light was in their midst, but they did not receive him because they loved the darkness they were in. This is a testimony to the tremendous power of sin. It causes the natural man to reject truth and life when it is staring him in the face. Sin is blinding. The sinner is in darkness. Did you know that truth and life They're staring you in the face every Sunday morning in this place as Christ is proclaimed to you through the preaching and reading and singing of the word concerning him. Truth and life are staring you in the face. He's in your midst. He's being proclaimed to you. And yet there are those of you who refuse to receive him as Lord. You have neither desire nor intention of truly following after him in faith and obedience. You don't really want to hear from him. You don't really want to sing praises to him. You don't really want to order your life according to his will. Don't deceive yourself into thinking that you are not in darkness because you have some kind of loose association with Jesus. Who is the true light? You must receive him as he truly is. And who is that? He's the Christ. He is the son of God. He is the creator of all things. He's the only mediator between God and men. 
He's the only Savior of sinners. He's the one whose atoning death and resurrection is the only basis for sinful men and women like you to be reconciled to a holy God. And the one who is Lord over all, including you and everything in your life. That's how you need to receive him. Otherwise, you have a a loose association with him. But that is not a, a saving association or a saving response to him. Now we read that when Christ, the true light, came into the world, the world did not know him, and his own people did not receive him. While it is true that as a whole, his own people, his own nation, did not receive him, there were nonetheless individuals who did receive him. And it is these people and their response to the true light that John turns our attention to in verses 12 and 13. Which we, in which we read this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now with regard to verse 12, the specific wording and word order in the Greek are more directly reflected in the translation that is in the New King James Version. I want, to, I want to show that to you because, again, I think it's helpful just to, to see how it's laid out. Because, again, sometimes we, if it's in a certain order, we might think it means something that maybe it doesn't. But it's helpful just to see, literally, this is, this is what it looks like. And it reads this. But as many as received him, right? So his own people did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name. While Christ's own people did not receive him, there were individuals who did, and to them he gave the right to become children of God. This tells us, first of all, that not all people are children of God. But only those who, what? Receive Jesus as he truly is. Not some version of him that, has you, uh, that you or someone else has created in order to make him more agreeable with, to your sinful flesh and worldly reasoning, but as he is, as he truly is. This verse also tells us that you cannot become a child of God apart from the only begotten Son of God sharing his sonship with you. It is by him graciously sharing the loving relationship that he has with the father that we can become those who experience and have a rightful claim to that loving relationship as well and the only way we can receive this is by receiving him it is his to give it is his to share it's through him that we come into that kind of relationship we're reconciled to god and can be children of God. We get it through the only begotten Son of God. Who are those who truly receive Him? Who are those who receive Him as He is and thus are given by Him the right to become children of God? What does John say? Those who believe in His name. Those who specifically, continually believe are believing in His name. A name represents the person behind the name, that is the whole person. 
The phrase, in his name, basically means in accordance with who he truly is, in light of who he truly is. To believe in Jesus' name, therefore, is to be convinced that he is the Christ, the Son of God. It is to be convinced that his claims and his teaching are true. Now, based on what we see in this passage, what is the main difference between genuine saving belief and superficial damning belief? Not all belief is the same. We're going to see that in John's gospel, by the way. He says of some of the crowd, some of the crowd, right, that they were believing. They believed. And yet, that same crowd ended up turning and saying, crucify him. Abandoning him, forsaking him. So what's the difference? Genuine belief, superficial belief. One that saves, one that leaves you condemned. Genuine saving belief results in one receiving Jesus. It results in one receiving Jesus. Superficial damning belief keeps him at a distance. Because you are ashamed of him. Or because you fear what others might think or say or do. Or because you disdain the idea of having to submit to him as Lord. I like the idea of forgiveness and resurrection and eternal life. That sounds nice. Not so sure about this whole, he who has my commandments and keeps him, he's the one who loves me. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? He's Lord. Superficial belief tries to just embrace part of him, not all of him. Another point we should not miss is that those who truly receive Jesus are those who, as I said, are continually believing in his name. It's not at a point of momentary belief or trust that one truly receives Jesus. Maybe at an altar call, responding to an invitation, maybe at a camp or a rally or something where you make a decision in that moment. And it's a a fleeting moment. It might have felt real in that moment, but there it stays, somewhere in the past. I gave my life to Christ. The question is, are you continually believing It's not a point of momentary belief or trust that you receive Jesus. It is, rather, it is at the starting point of continual belief and trust that one truly receives Jesus. Right? No turning back. Now, with regard to becoming children of God, the Israelites already thought of themselves as being such because they belonged to God's chosen nation, of which God himself said, Israel is my son, my firstborn. This mindset is reflected in the the Jews' reaction or interaction with Jesus later in John's Gospel in chapter 8. And their statement to him is, we have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. But that was their mindset, and we see that. Jesus made it clear that their nationality and physical lineage did not make them children of God. And this is the point that John drives home in verse 13. Again, makes it clear as day. And for context, we'll read from verse 12, New King King James Version. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, 
but of God. Now the ones who believed in Jesus' name and received him as he truly is are those who were born of God. I'll say that again. The ones who actually received him and believed in his name, received him as he truly is and believed in his name, are those who were born of God. Their first birth, their natural one, had no bearing on their right to become children of God. To be born of blood is a reference to the natural process by which a child develops in the womb and then is born. According to one commentator, it was a current doctrine in Greek physiology that the human embryo made from the seed of the father uh, was made from the seed of the father and the blood of the mother. An excerpt from the Jewish apocryphal book, The Wisdom of Solomon, which was written sometime in the second century BC. So again, another source that shows us this kind of thinking, uh, this, how this term was used or uh, this process was described. Uh, it, it reflects a similar line of thinking. It says, in the womb of a mother, I was molded into flesh within the period of 10 months, compacted with blood from the seed of a man and the pleasure of marriage. So again, born of blood, natural, natural process by which a child grows in the womb and is born. Speaking of the seed of man and the pleasure of marriage, the next statement John makes about those who believe is that they were not born of the will of the flesh. The will of the flesh is a reference to sexual desire. And then the next statement, I'll let you fill in the blank, I think you understand what that means. The next statement that John makes is that they were not born of the will of man, which in this context is speaking of the will of a husband, who is the one who typically chooses to initiate the romantic activity through which he begets a child. But John is saying it is by, not these things, but by God's initiative and supernatural work that one is spiritually born again and thus believes in Jesus' name and receives him as Lord. John says in his, his epistle, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, the first part of that, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The reason why the world did not know the true light when he was here, and the reason why most of his own people did not receive him, is ultimately because they weren't born of God. The reason why anyone remains in darkness and continues to reject Jesus is ultimately because God has not caused him to be born again. Do you remember a conversation Jesus had with the man Nicodemus? We'll get to that in chapter 3. What did he say? Must be born again. And how do I do that? Ah, uh, you know, it's the Spirit of God. It's an act of God. Supernatural. It's a miraculous work of God. In our flesh, we may be tempted to think that this is somehow unfair for those who don't believe. Can't do anything about it, can you? Is that unfair? Careful, I just said it's in our sinful flesh that we're tempted to think that. To that I would say this. Because we were born in sin, because we're born in sin, we are born spiritually dead. I think scripture reading just confirmed that. 
earlier. Dead in trespasses and in your sins. So we're born in sin. We are spiritually dead. And this is not merely a state of separation from God, but also it is a state of rebellion against him. So it's not like a neutral position. And it's not just that people cannot believe, but that they will not believe. Again, in in their natural state, born in sin, separated from God, mind is hostile to God. There's no inclination toward God. And in my spiritual state, my condition is that I can't believe. I'm in darkness. But it's also true that I won't believe. Apart from God's supernatural intervention, the new birth, you are spiritually unable, but you are also personally unwilling. And that's what makes you morally culpable. Here's a a good explanation of this from a man named John Chrysostom. Chrysostom was a kind of a nickname called the Golden Mouth. He was a preacher, minister in the church, You know when he lived? When he ministered? He ministered at the end of the 4th century, over 1,600 years ago. I just thought you would like to know that as we read this great explanation and just clear teaching and show you that, you know, nothing changes. Good word is a good word. Don't care if it's 1,600 years old. Let's look at some wisdom from a, a, a follower of Christ who's ministering to his church from way back in the day. He says, but if some, again, on the issue of spiritually incapable, but personally unwilling and therefore morally culpable. You can't make yourself be born again, but you are nonetheless guilty before God because you willingly are in rebellion against him. You have no desire to receive him. But if some, he says, willfully closing the eyes of their mind would not receive the rays of that light. Their darkness arises not from the nature of the light, but from their own wickedness, who willfully deprive themselves of the gift. Remember, Christ's light shines upon all, gives light to all men, willingly deprive themselves of the gift. He goes on, for the grace is shed forth upon all. And those who are not willing to enjoy this gift ought in justice, rightly, to impute their blindness to themselves. For if when the gate is open to all and there is none to hinder, any being willfully evil remain without. They perish through none other, but only through their own wickedness. Only through their own wickedness. So to those of you who do not have true fellowship with Christ and thus are still in darkness and in bondage to your sins, you must believe in Jesus' name and receive him as he truly is so that your sins might be forgiven, so that you might be reconciled to God and be given the right to become a child of God. Believe in his name, you must receive him as he truly is. You've been, you've been told. We've sung about him. We've read of him. You're seeing who he truly is, and you must receive him as such and believe in his name. But to those of us who have been graciously given that right, because God 
has graciously caused us to be born again so that we have received the Lord Jesus and continue to believe in his name. Now, let's prepare for the time of communion. We're going to have that. We are going to reflect upon his sacrifice that we are trusting in. And again, remember, why do we take communion? Or what is it, what is it showing? We are commemorating the Lord's substitutionary death on behalf of us, taking the punishment we deserve for our sins in order that they might not be counted against us, but we might be forgiven, justly forgiven by God. And the meal consuming the cracker and the juice, the, the, what represent the body and blood of the Lord, that is, that is a continual demonstration of the fact that we have received Jesus. We are continually believing Him. We're continually trusting in Him. So in light of that, let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this time we, we have been able to hear from You. And I pray, Lord, just that You would open the eyes of those who are blind, those who are in darkness, that You would cause the light of Your Son to shine upon them to break through that darkness, that you would indeed cause them to be born again, that they might respond in faith and repentance and believe upon your son, Jesus, and receive him as he truly is, King of kings, Lord of lords, Lord of all creation, the only way to you, Father, and the only one who has the right to share his relationship with you with anyone else to make people children of God, that we might be considered your children and have eternal life and fellowship with you. pray that you would save them, open their eyes to their own hardness of heart, give them new life, that they might be saved. And Father, I pray for the rest of us that we might, who have received this glorious gift, your grace, that we would not presume upon it, but that because of it, as an expression of praise and, and worship that we would, in gratitude, give all of our lives to you, walk in your ways, in the good works that you prepared for us, that we might truly live as your children here and now in this fallen world before you call us to our heavenly home. Thank you for the hope of glory. Thank you for your son. Jesus, we thank you for making the way to God, giving us life, giving us hope, being our hope. It's in your name we pray. Amen.